Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. Today, we're exploring ESG investing strategies, which incorporate environmental, social, and governance principles. We've highlighted ESG as an important way to navigate the new market, one of the key themes from our 2021 Capital Markets Forecast. My first guest today is Harvard Law School professor Robert Sitkoff, an expert on wills, trusts, estates, and fiduciary principles, including fiduciary investment. Professor Sitkoff previously taught at New York University School of Law and at Northwestern University School of Law before joining Harvard Law School as the youngest tenured professor to hold a chair in the history of the school. I also want to welcome Steve Norsini, portfolio manager on our ESG equity strategy, who we will be talking to later in the podcast. Professor Sitkoff and Steve, to both of you, thank you for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. Happy to answer to Rob. Professor Sitkoff, we'll start with you. ESG investing has been front and center recently in conversations about trends in investment management, but the broader term of socially conscious investing and the term SRI, which stands for socially responsible investing, has been with us for quite some time. I thought perhaps with this mix of acronyms, it may be smart to start with a bit of an overview on the idea of socially responsible investing and how we've gotten to where we are today. So the issue is that ESG investing, that phrase uh, resists a precise definition. Um, Roughly speaking, we use it today to mean any investment strategy that emphasizes uh, the governance structure of the firm or the environmental and social impacts of the firm's products and practices. But it finds its roots, as you said, in SRI, the socially responsible investment movement that really gained a lot of salience or prominence in the 1980s as part of a divestment campaign aimed at uh, South Africa's um, apartheid regime. So the, the idea, the basic concept has a lot of labels, ethical investing, economically targeted investments, sustainable or responsible investing, impact investing. Today, it's largely under the rubric of uh, ESG, which you know reflects a kind of modernization and refocus of the topic. And one of the ways that I've thought about it, tell me if you think I have it right, is that socially responsible investing has always been what I would describe perhaps as an exclusionary approach to investing. In other words, don't invest in firearms manufacturers, don't invest in tobacco companies, don't invest in companies that pollute the world through hydrocarbons, whereas ESG, on the other hand, are denotes an investing approach that's inclusive, that tries to identify companies that engage in positive behaviors rather than just ones that have negative characteristics. I think what I hear you suggesting is a distinction between um, methods, that that ESG is a different kind set of methods. And I would add to that motives also. And let me explain what I I mean. Um, So SRI in the the 70s with the Vietnam War and in the 80s into the South African apartheid, the motive for uh, SRI was this idea of uh, influencing behavior by using our investment program to change the behavior of others for a positive social good. As SRI morphed into ESG, there became a greater emphasis on ESG as investment factors on their own right. In other words, use of ESG factors to improve risk-adjusted returns. 
So, you know, there's some folks who argue can use ESG factors to improve returns through exclusionary approaches, but um, more commonly today, we see ESG implemented through inclusionary or for targeted what securities to pursue or through active shareholding kind of engagement with uh, management. So I guess my, my kind of punchline on that would be that uh, it's both a motives and methods uh, evolution in the principle. So now you've brought in a, a topic that gets us very close to what I think of as the central problematic of the whole ESG universe. You've talked about motives. So let me follow that line of thought, Rob, which is that in my experience, when our clients think about investing in an ESG manner, their initial motive is not actually that they want to do well by an investment standard or metric, but rather that they're worried about the world and they want to do good. They want to invest in companies that in some value-based sense are going to do good for the world. And then that puts us as an investment shop a bit on our heels because we have to then ask ourselves, our responsibility to this investor is to advise them so that they can maximize the risk-adjusted returns. They can, do, they can do well as an investor, not necessarily do good. And the central question is, can doing good in the world be tantamount to doing well? You're an expert on fiduciary law and fiduciaries have to always think about their beneficiary and doing well. So you've written copiously on this. You have a very um, important article that you wrote in the Stanford uh, Law Review. Could you take what I've laid out and, and, and take it where you'd like to go with it in the sense of framing for us how you think about this question around what the approach should be in thinking about doing well and doing good with these kinds of ESG investments? Well, sure. It's always dangerous to uh, ask a professor an open-ended question and say, take this where you want. But so let me, let me say a couple of quick things, and then we can see wh where you'd like to go from, um, from there. So there are really two pieces, I think, to what you're, you're asking here. One is about uh, the, the, this idea of doing well while doing good. Can I have, can I have uh, improved risk-adjusted returns while also doing good for the world? And then you layer over that the fiduciary frame, which is the, the scholarly work that I've done, the article you, you referenced, is uh, to what extent can a fiduciary, can a trustee engage in ESG investing, given that background fiduciary law uh, pushes towards a focus on risk-adjusted uh, returns? So uh, there's today a, a debate about the extent to which fiduciaries can engage in ESG investing. There are some folks who argue that um, ESG investing is prohibited for trustees and other fiduciaries because trustees and other fiduciaries have a fiduciary duty of loyalty. They have to act in the sole and exclusive interest of their beneficiaries. And that means thinking about what's good for the beneficiaries without regard for collateral benefits to the world or, or otherwise. There are other folks, though, who argue that ESG investing is a good kind of investment program that will yield improved risk-adjusted returns. And since a fiduciary has a duty of prudence to act prudently to pursue returns, these folks argue that fiduciaries always have to use ESG investing. It would be illegal not to use uh, ESG. The thesis of the article you mentioned is that they're all wrong, <laughs> that, uh, the, that the short answer is maybe. If your motive, if the reason you're using ESG investing is to pursue risk-adjusted returns, 
then ESG investing is just like any other kind of active investing strategy. If as a fiduciary, you have a reasonable basis for thinking that this is a sound investment program, you document it, you periodically review, then you can use this like any other form of active uh, investing. On the other hand, if uh, your motive is to provide collateral third-party benefits, well, just like you couldn't take your fiduciary funds and just hand it to some third party, you can't invest it for the benefit of a third party. So that it depends is a both a motive test, you acting for the beneficiaries, and then a prudence test. Is this a prudent particular mode of investment that you've chosen? And so I say this somewhat tongue in cheek, but maybe not entirely. When you think about what's good for the beneficiary, can you take into account the health of their conscience? Yeah, it's a great uh, question, right? This often comes up. If, if I have to act exclusively for my beneficiaries and the way I, I improve my beneficiaries' welfare is by some other third-party benefit, can I, uh, can I do that? And so I, I think the answer there varies by fiduciary relationship. And so let me do a, a one-minute little um, sideline on fiduciary. We all say fiduciary, but fiduciary is a, is a big word that means a lot of different things in different contexts. So what do I mean by that? So we're talking about pension plans, for example, pension retirement accounts that's governed by uh, federal law, ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. Federal law, that statute is interpreted by the Supreme Court, is has a really um, strict duty of loyalty, meaning you must act for the exclusive benefit of the beneficiaries and for their financial interests. The court has rejected looking at anything other than their f- uh, financial returns. And there's a public policy there that until you reach retirement age, that money is there to be grown for consumption in the future. But what about like a private trust? You know, I create a trust for my kids. Well, there's a little more flexibility in, in, in a personal trust in defining what is the purpose of the trust? What is the objective of the trust? There'd be a little bit more, a little bit more leeway there. And this would be distinct from, say, a charity. You know, if I create a charity that's for the benefit of the environment, then I can use my investments uh, as an alternative to distributions and really consider third-party benefits because that's the purpose of the fiduciary account, the fiduciary relationship. It is to benefit the third-party purposes of the charity. This is an unfair question because you're not the investment specialist on the lines, but you spend a lot of time in this space. So I'm going to ask you anyway, and you can feel free to decline to answer. But the question is empirically, when you observe the ESG space, from your perspective, have you found that these ESG criteria or factors, if you will, can be reliably used by good money managers to help increase their risk-adjusted returns? Or do you not really have a point of view on that question? I do. And we, we took a position of this in, in the article. And um, it, it, there, there are really two pieces to the, the answer. So the first is that um, as a theoretical matter, there's good theory that would connect uh, E, S, and G factors to firm value. And there's also some theory for why you could use that relationship to, uh, to in investment strategies for, for profit. What is complicated is empirical investigation of whether or not um, this bears out over time, in, in part because of the fluidity of what do we mean by ESG. So let me give you an example. You know, it, it, within within any one factor, take environmental, right? How do you score nuclear energy? It's pretty clean compared to carbon, but you could have a catastrophic kind of a meltdown. And then, you know, what do you do with a with a nuclear power company that has great governance and is really strong social factors, or a fossil fuel company that's maybe poor on 
environmental, but strong social or governance. Where I'm going with this is that there's a lot of subjectivity in both identifying E, S, and G factors, determining which way they point, and then weighing those factors across a company, which provides a real challenge for empirical scrutiny because you could have two investment strategies that are completely opposite and yet both both could qualify as ESG and have opposite kinds of returns. Our punchline in the paper was that there is some evidence that in certain instances, ESG factors can produce risk-adjusted returns. But in a fiduciary space, we would always take that back down to show me your, your investment strategy as trustee and your documented reason analysis behind it. One of the things that you've said that I find to be really fascinating is this idea that two people can look at the same investment and have very diametric conclusions as to whether that particular investment is a, is a strong or, or a weak ESG investment. And we see today as investors, in many cases, people will take a, a position in a company and then they'll become active. What role does that play, that active shareholding in your mind in the ESG space? And is it something that investors should be focused on in evaluating whether or not a company would be a good ESG investment? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So one, one of the challenges in evaluating uh, ESG strategies is that there are so many different ways to take these factors and deploy them in investment programs. So you identify, for example, maybe I find a firm that's got really poor ESG scores, invest in that firm, and then engage with management through proxy voting or by direct engagement in order to encourage the firm to adopt more positive ESG approaches if I think that's going to improve firm uh, value, right? That's a, that's a kind of strong form of, of the active approach. I, I would say, and I, I think a, this, is not a, this is not uniquely due uh, to us, there's a lot of sense out there that active shareholding is the future of ESG investing instead of using ESG factors to pick and choose securities. You know, picking and choosing securities is hard. Markets are relatively efficient. It's hard to make money in the long run by, by, by looking for misvaluations. But active shareholding doesn't require misvaluation. You can have a firm that's for which the pricing in the market is exactly right because it has poor governance or poor E or poor S, but through active uh, engagement with the firm, improve firm value. Or by the same token, you have a high ESG firm and have active engagement to protect that value through ESG um, active shareholding. And I'll just wrap that up by saying, I think there's your explanation for why we see passive um, index fund managers talking ESG also. The ESG talk in passive investors is, um, particularly if you have to hold the whole market, is what you can do to protect your value is engage with management to hold up and improve firm value. How ubiquitous is that today in your assessment of the industry? Is that something that's more on the the, the, the margin or do you think, do you see it happening with most Fortune 500 companies pretty broadly in a way that management is actually responsive to that kind of engagement? Well, on one side, on the investor side, it's, it's a really big deal. I mean, first, you'd be hard pressed to find a mutual fund that doesn't have G factor in its proxy voting guidelines. So if you take G seriously as part of ESG, every mutual fund is an ESG fund because it considers firm governance as part of proxy engagement. But, you know, the, the big funds, Vanguard and BlackRock and the like, if you look at their proxy voting and engagement guidelines, they've got ES and G uh, in there. And that's a lot of money, right? That's, and those are, those are market index funds. So that's a lot of money touching every company with guidelines for 
engagement. Now, how good any those firms are doing it and how seriously they take it, that's a harder question. On the other end of it, you're asking about management of the company. You know, you would imagine that's going to vary from firm to uh, firm and, you know, and whether, and, and also how much of this responsiveness is real versus greenwashing and kind of, you know, talk is uh, cheap, but it's certainly seems like the, um, if you, you know, if you take money movement and reactions in the market as a revealed preference, there's a, it's a big deal. It's a lot of activity now on the engagement side with ESG factors. So Rob, thank you for that. I, I have described ESG for many years to clients and even my colleagues at the company as this wave that's been crossing the ocean. Crisscrossing the ocean is probably a better way to say it. And waiting for it to hit the shore. And 2020, I can honestly say, is the year that that wave really hit the shore. I wonder whether or not the tide will go back out or whether it's gonna stay with us for a long time. I feel like you're gonna say the answer is, well, Tony, that'll just depend on whether ESG criteria proves successful in helping investors maximize risk-adjusted return. How would you answer that question? What, what are your expectations for ESG as we move forward? Certainly the trend that this is, 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 is here, what, what makes this really hard is though that, um, e, first of all, ES and G is a weird pairing, right? To have governance along with environmental and social. And second, it's just really hard to know that when you say ESG and when I say ESG, we're talking about the same thing. And so because it's such a, uh, it, the, the concept is so fluid and so capacious and covers so many items so much, so much, I think it's here for a while. And let me just give you an anecdote to, uh, on this. So the example I like is uh, Tesla. There's a, uh, um, uh, FTSC ranks Tesla a last in the auto industry, lower even than, than, than Exxon. MCS, MSCI ranks Tesla as the top. Right, so you have two different rating agencies looking at the same company, giving one a really high, one a really low. So what, I'm kind of resisting the question in the sense that ESG is here, but ESG, you know, it's kind of like beauty in the eye of the beholder, how you score these things because of the subjectivity in what qualifies as a factor and which way the factor points in a given uh, in a given case. Very interesting. So let me bring Steve into the conversation. Steve, you're a portfolio manager, and I know you have a passion for ESG, and I know that you feel that these ESG criteria can, in fact, be quite important in identifying companies that are likely to, to succeed. One of the ideas that, in thinking about the enterprise and the company, I know you've thought a lot about recently is, and it's sort of a, a dimension that runs perhaps parallel to ESG, is the idea of stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism. I, I learned in law school a long time ago that when a company is created, essentially it's created for a single purpose. It's created for the benefit of the stockholder, to make money for the stockholder. But this idea of stakeholder capitalism is a new concept that brings in additional constituents. Take us through what that transition is and what it's meant. So, as you said, shareholder capitalism or the, the focus purely on the shareholder and maximizing their returns is something that's been with us for, for quite a while, sort of made famous in the early 1970s by Milton Friedman with his famous New York Times article. Purpose of a corporation is, is to make money for the shareholder. Uh, we ran that experiment for about 40 or 50 years to, to present day. And what we've seen is some... Uh, structural flaws in that model. Um, 
the shareholders have different incentives and different payoffs relative to other stakeholders and certainly society at large. Uh, just as an example, shareholders can diversify their risk. They have limited liability. They can only lose their initial capital investment. And they oftentimes have uh, shorter time horizons than what, what you might think. Uh, this is opposed to broader society at large and uh, certainly the company's employees, the communities in which they operate in, um, their suppliers, these stakeholders have uh, unlimited liability. They can't sell their position. Um, they cannot diversify away their risks. So they have much more skin in the game. And what stakeholder capitalism tends to do is by incorporating the interests of those stakeholders, you're, you're essentially extending your investment time horizon or the time horizon of the company. Um, and when you do that, you know, you're certainly uh, improving the the outcomes for stakeholders, but the argument is for stakeholder capitalism is that it's actually also better for shareholders as well over the long term. And you can look at a, a number of different companies that have openly practiced this. M&T Bank certainly comes to mind uh, where the, the financial returns for shareholders also benefit from, from this approach. And the main key here being uh, that long-term time horizon. And it's a word I'll introduce here, which is sustainability. That's something we talk about quite, quite a bit. So again, the idea being that instead of just worrying about the shareholder, you're worried about the employee, you're worried about the client, you're worried about the community, and all that comes together to a longer perspective on adding value and, and adding value to a broader set of constituents. So how does that relate to ESG? How does ESG come into the picture? So, um, you know, I'll just explain our, our view of ESG um, and how this fits in. So th that presents a, a pretty big problem for management teams, right? Like how do you uh, balance all these competing interests of the employees, the shareholders, the, the, the community at large? How do you do that? And what we found is um, ESG principles and ESG criteria can provide a, a fairly robust roadmap for these management teams, for these companies uh, to pursue basically the benefits of, of all stakeholders. Um, now, whether it's E, which is the environmental impact, of, of course, uh, of the companies, but also the yes. So that, that's where you're explicitly uh accounting for the impact on employees or your suppliers or even your competitors, to be totally honest, certainly certainly regulators. And then corporate governance is, of course, uh, the rules and processes in place uh, for the company to, to execute successfully on this plan. So ESG is sort of a new tool in the toolbox for companies to pursue uh, the, the competing interests of all stakeholders with the end goal in mind. And just to bring this back to Professor Sitkoff's point uh, of maximizing firm value over the long term. And again, that this term of sustainability, you'll hear a lot. That is, you know, the value of a company is really the sum of its future cash flows. And if the company's not going to be around for a long time, it's a, a permanently impaired asset. So that, that's how we view ESG and how this sort of all, all ties together. And Steve, what percentage of firms in the Fortune 500, let's say, are doing this? And I asked that question with an eye to wondering at what point does this become so prevalent that it ceases to be a useful distinction among companies because they all purport to be doing it. I'm of the view that five years, 10 years from now, we're, we're all going to be, quote, ESG investors because it's in all of our interest to uh, continue to uh, operate a more, a more sustainable model. 
to answer your question specifically, I would think almost all S&P 500 companies now have some type of sustainability, corporate responsibility, ESG effort underway. Essentially, once, you, once you've reached a certain size and in investors, certainly it started in Europe, but even in the United States now, investors are starting to demand this. So let's talk about performance, Steve. I've highlighted a lot through the conversation with, with Rob, the doing good versus doing well. Uh, what we found actually is that the ESG strategies have done really well recently. Is that just equip the basic concept that ESG are in fact criteria that promote long-term firm value? Or is there something else going on here? Yeah, so we, we definitely view ESG as another form of quality, just like balance sheet leverage or stability of earning stream, how robust your employee base is, your environmental footprint, your relationship with your suppliers, uh, basically your relationship with all your stakeholders. These companies, uh, we believe, are much more resilient to some, some of the shocks that, that we've experienced over the last few years. So in the case of the pandemic, you know, you did see high quality ESG companies outperform. Did they outperform purely because of ESG factors? You, you know, we'll never know. But certainly, uh, as more time rolls by and these strategies do well, it, it at least challenges the notion, which is what we run into a lot, which is, you know, ESG is automatically going to have to harm returns. And one of the questions that I ask myself is when one scores companies from an ESG lens, Certainly, there is a rank order within the S&P 500, let's say, and it's very popular. So a lot of money is chasing and trying to get into the ESG investing space. So the price at which a security clears in the market is a function of supply and demand. Because there's a lot of demand now for these securities, you have sort of a, transit, a transition period where, where ESG is hitting the wave, the wave is hitting the shore, and that's causing a lot of upper pressure from a demand standpoint, and then therefore on the prices of these securities. But eventually you'll reach an equilibrium where you won't have that tailwind anymore. Is that going on here? So I don't think so for, for a number of different reasons. Uh, first is, as, as Professor Sikoff pointed out, um, ESG is sort of in the eye of the beholder. You can have one company that scores very well, another company that doesn't score so well. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely don't think there's a uniform application of ESG principles that, that would actually impact asset prices. I, I think much more likely is that the market is recognizing the durability of some of these ESG qualities, uh, as well as the opportunities as well. So um, during the sell-off, coming out of the sell-off in, in March, you know, companies that had this growth path, and I'll just take, pick environmental. So if you're, trans if you're a utility company transitioning off of your coal plants into alternative energy and, and uh, lower carbon intensity natural gas, well, that's actually a pretty attractive uh, going forward business model uh, for that company. So that, that company's done well. Um, these future prospects looking brighter that happen to fall in the, the ESG uh, sort of packaging, I think that's what the market's responding to. Uh, these are forward-looking companies, more robust, higher quality, and they're 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 uh, being granted a, a higher uh, premium in the in the stock market. And last question for you, Steve, and then I'm going to have one final question for for Rob. When you think about the current opportunity set, is there an area that you think is most 
interesting, but potentially remunerative, if you will, for investors right now, when you look over a six or 12 month horizon within ESG, what is it that you're most tickled by right now as a, as a portfolio manager? Yeah, so uh, I, I will give you the trade and I will say this isn't a six months or, or a year long outlook. This is certainly a, a 20 to, to 40 year outlook and, and it, it has to do with decarbonization. So it's something, you know, kind of half tongue in cheek referred to as the next great decoupling. So since the industrial revolution, our economic growth has been tied to uh, burning fossil fuels with the advent of the internal combustion engine. Uh, going forward, that close relationship between economic growth and, and fossil fuels uh, is, is not going to be sustainable. So we're going to have to decouple economic growth from, from our uh, carbon emissions. The companies that are working to help us do that, whether it's that utility company example I explained, or maybe it's a software company that's helping firms get more efficient in their supply chain. Um, it could be an industrial company that's increasing the uh, energy efficiency of our existing engines and fleets. Um, these types of trades, and it's all over the market, you can find opportunities like this in every single uh, sector in the S&P 500. And um, we like to think our ESG strategy and other ESG strategies in general We'll be pursuing these companies. This is where the the best sort of long term risk adjusted returns are going to come from. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And Rob, I realized as I was listening to to yourself and to Steve today that there's another term that we often use within this space that we haven't talked about, and I feel it would be somewhat remiss to not introduce it in the conversation in some way, which is impact investing. And I think of impact investing as much like ESG, maybe it's even the same thing. Maybe they're, they're substitutes for one another. But impact investing for me often involves some form of private investing or writing a, a check as opposed to buying a share of stock. And I'm wondering if impact investing, where it fits in your mind in this universe, are there any distinctions around impact investing that would be helpful for us to be thinking about? What's neat about that question is it, it kind of brings us full circle to the, to the start of the podcast with thinking about, you know, what is ESG investing and where did it uh, come from? I mean, w w these are all labels that are imprecise and inexact because they evolve. They evolve over time and different people use them in different ways. So, you know, for you describe what for you impact investing evokes. If you, if you ask, you know, other folks in industry, for some, they'll say impact investing, oh, that, that's just socially responsible investing in, you know, SRI, or, or they might say impact investing. Yeah, that's what ESG is and so on. You know, if we were, if we were operating on a clean slate, we would come up with clear terms for all these different ideas. In other words, we would have one term, maybe, you know, ESG investing for use of ESG factors for risk adjusted returns. And then we would say impact investing or SRI or something when our motive is these third party benefits and, 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 and the like. So uh, it's not really ducking the question as much as what I'm trying to say is that um, ESG has become today the umbrella term for all of these concepts, for use of these factors, either to pursue risk-adjusted returns or because of the effect, the beneficial effects they have, you know, macro or, or micro. Um, and that a lot of the reason why, you know, we have to have these kind of conversations, a lot of the reason there's kind of confusion among investors and others and interest by regulators is that 
these concepts, the, 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 the vocabulary is not settled and what people mean, what they're doing by these words is not at all uh, consistent. That's very helpful. Thank you. What I would like to do, as I always do, is summarize our three key takeaways from our conversation. And the first I would say is that ESG investing, when applied in the right way, is entirely consistent, can be entirely consistent with fiduciary principles. And so a investor who has a fiduciary duty should not in any way shy away from looking at ESG just because it is potentially benefiting others besides the beneficiary, as long as the ESG approach and criteria can be found to be central or integral to benefiting the core beneficiary. Second takeaway is that we certainly are seeing empirical evidence that companies that score well from a conventional ESG scoring system can outperform. We've seen it happen a lot in the last couple of years, and there's good reason, as Rob articulated for us, to think that these ESG characteristics of a company could in fact create firm value. And, and so there's theoretical underpinnings for the reality of doing good actually also resulting in doing well from an investing standpoint. And then lastly, we would say that looking forward, there's a lot of opportunity in ESG. ESG is probably gonna to continue to be more broadly used as an approach to investing rather than less so. And specifically, one of the areas that we see the most opportunity is focusing on companies that are really understanding how they can set up their business and their enterprise to minimize their carbon footprint as the world inevitably over the next number of decades increasingly moves away from, from carbon emissions. So with that, I want to thank Professor Setkoff and Steve for your terrific insights and joining us today. Thanks, Terry. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you both. And I want to remind our listeners how important it is to have your portfolio and wealth plan stress tested to see how they stack up given the various risks that we will confront going forward, whether it be inflation, um, hopefully not a recession for quite some time after we are still recovering from our uh, last COVID-induced recession. Um, but we spend a lot of time looking at portfolios on a customized basis and understanding how various shocks could impact portfolios. Uh, and we find that it really conduces to better outcomes for our, for our clients. So if, you, if that's something of interest, please reach out to your investment advisor. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. 
our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through m Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by m Bank, member FDIC. 2021 m Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved.